Welcome to Prestige, a podcast all about films, filmmaking and film theory. Now before we start, I just want to mention that, I mean, this is the last film of the franchise season, season two. Um, it's over, it's finally, it's over. <laughs> um, for fairly boring uh, real world reasons, we're having a week off next week, uh, but we will be commemorating the end of season two. With a special patrons-only podcast looking back at the franchise season. So, for more details on this, subscribe. And on which note, if you haven't subscribed yet, then this would be a great time to do so. With exciting new content being uploaded, uh, please do. Apart, I mean, I just want to say, apart from the time spent watching the films and recording and putting together the show notes, I, I don't have to do an awful lot for this. It's not a huge time commitment for me. And Rob works his fingers to the bone doing everything for this and 59,000 other podcasts. Um, and I know he's chosen to do this, the fool. So it's not like you'd be helping someone out who's in dire need. But if you can and you like what we do, then please do reward him for all the stupidly hard work that he puts in. I am the true hero here. Well, I wasn't going to say. Well, we're all thinking it. It's fine. It's yeah. fine. So back to the podcast this week, guys. As always, we pick a movie for the week, we review it, we talk about it, we discuss it, and some of the ideas and themes it throws up. And we always end with our recommendations of further reading inspired by the film of the week. Uh, before we kick off with the movie proper, we always like to have a little catch-up on what else we've been watching. It's not the things we watch for the show, but uh, just what else we can find the time to watch. So Sam, in, in the last week since uh, we looked at The Two Towers, what has graced your screen, big or small? Right, um, small screen, actually, it, it's something that I've been catching up on after very much enjoying the first season of this on, on your recommendation. Um, I've just started the second season of Mr. Robot. I don't believe I mentioned it here before. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's not starting as... I mean, I'm, I'm not as gripped by it as I was at points in season one, but I'm sure that will change. Um, I've not seen very many episodes, so I will carry on with that. Brilliant. How about you? Um, well, I, I also for me, it's been been a small screen week. Um, I have gone back to the well and uh, re-embraced an old TV series that re- like gets a lot of sort of love, but uh, it kind of was cancelled off three series and needed more than that. And that is the TV series Happy Endings. In many ways, it's a a sitcom in the Friends clone. In many uh, sort of friends hanging out, relaxing, but it's closer in tone to something like Coupling, the British um, sitcom. It's mm. dark and twisted in times and sexual and weird um but full of like light-hearted love and and real kind of friendship so if you haven't watched it it's worth looking out but go into it knowing that it was cancelled early and that it's a great crime you have a thing for cancelled tv show it's you know i, I it's one of those things i look at my life and think all the shows i love get cancelled Every election of voting, I lose. Like at a certain point, I'm like, you know what? I'm just out of touch with the rest of the rest of my, my generation. Clearly, right. This this week, um, Rob, you need to tell us about the the very last film of the season. Yes. So this week, the last um, movie in this franchise and the last movie of this season is Lord of the Rings: Return of the King. Eye of the enemy is moving. The 
end has come. Every day, Frodo moves closer to Mordor. How do we know Frodo is alive? What does your heart tell you? Released in 2003, Return of the King is the concluding chapter of A, Tolkien's books, and B, Jackson's trilogy. And all the sort of disparate threads of the previous two movies kind of come together. We have the last stages of Frodo and Sam's journey towards Mount Doom. We have the sort of the fallout of the Battle of Helm's Deep from last time and sort of the restoring of man and the kind of conclusion and the climax of the uh, of all the stories and how it ends. Now obviously we're going to get into spoiler territory really fast on this episode but the movie's been out for 15 years and the book's been out for many many years and at a certain point if you listen to this I'm hoping you've seen one or, or, or the other um, but if you haven't seen the film this is not one to listen to. There are spoilers straight off the bat I imagine. Yeah. Sam Having not yes. been a, I would say, a lover of the fantasy genre well, going into this and not being overly won over by the previous two films, how did you feel the concluding chapter fared? Now, in conversation with Rob about this, I used the word anticlimax when talking about potential idea for a theme. Um, and he immediately thought I was being negative about it. Um it, I wasn't being native. I think I've, I've chosen slightly the wrong word. I was trying to capture the the feeling that Frodo had when he got back to the Shire after the events. I didn't mean... and the, I wasn't trying to get across. That was how I felt about the film at all. I was just um, drawn by that and, and sort of... I'm, I'm still left thinking about that response to his travels. Um... So definitely not an anticlimax. Um, I enjoyed it much more than I did the second film, um, maybe even the first film. Although, yeah, I'm not sure. I did, did quite like the setup at the beginning of the first film. Um, again, my usual criticism of Lord of the Rings stand, usual negative criticisms of Lord of the Rings stand. It's it's too long, and there are too many characters for me to keep track of, but. It, the usual positives as well it's again spectacular in the way it looks um, and yeah I, I thought this was a worthy conclusion I, I at times really enjoyed this film I'm, I'm very glad this is in many ways my favourite of, of the three films um, so I'm kind of glad that you had that reaction to it for my part, it, it's not unusual to say that I really enjoyed this film. I think that, for me, whilst you say there are lots of lots of disparate characters, and I agree there are lots of characters, it's far easier than reading the book when they're all called similar names. Um, in this, at least they look different. Mm. Um, and I did enjoy the way that they managed to tie together all the narrative strands at the end and the feeling that everybody gets the conclusion that they've earned um, and no one's hard done by by the, by the narrative in the way that some other sort of stories do. I think also that the uh, the Battle of Minas Tirith 
which is the big sort of centerpiece in many ways of the film, the midpoint of the film, in which it, you have the, bat, the, 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 the assembled armies attacking Minas Tirith, um, who are helped by the Rohirrim and the uh, the men of Gondor, um, and and then helped by the armies of the dead from the mountains. That to me, it's hard to look back because I remember at the time being blown away by this. And these days, large epic battle scenes are kind of are, are path the course. They're they're trite when it comes to movies. But it, it, unless you were watching movies at the time, guys, it's hard to understand that this was something we'd never seen. The the, the visual effects that Weta put together for this film were were outstanding. The sweeping vistas of armies fighting that didn't look like a video game where everyone moved in step was was something re- revelatory to to an audience. So, for me, that was very much the action high point of the film. Uh, to move on to some negatives, I think the ending went on a little bit too long. I think the ending, from when they do destroy the ring to the end of the film, it felt like too much of a coda. I understand why all those things were there. I understand the the uh, sort of the need for all of those, and it's certainly longer in the extended versions. But from a narrative point of view, the story was done at the destruction of the ring. And you have a little bit of that, but it kind of went on too long. And that's where I think, as you talk about anticlimax, there's almost a couple of narrative working here, and it feels like the main one ended, but secretly there's a second one running. And it's the one that we encounter at the end, this kind of, this feeling of, oh, what now? I suppose that, that's a good way to end, end this franchise and end this season, that there is that there should be that sense at the end of a franchise that okay this is finished but there is a possibility that this could go somewhere else mm. so it's, and that's the thing always with, I mean, not really with a self-contained franchise like this that's based on books but in other franchises there's always a sense particularly nowadays that you're looking at the 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 next instalment looking mm. at what's going to happen now. I agree with you that sort of code a bit is too long and I'm not quite sure why parts of it were there, but I did, I thought it was one of the best moments in the film, the best scenes in the film was um, after afterwards, after the destruction of the ring, was the saving of the hobbits and the fact that the sound kept dipping in and out during the saving the hobbits and also Frodo waking up in the shop mm. because there was something there that not having full sound in those final scenes it, this the dialogue dropping out I'd say the sound dropping in now is the dialogue more than that because the music was still there it gives them a sort of dreamlike effect and it means that viewers can't quite believe what's happening and it gives it puts viewers in the position of Frodo mm-hmm. throughout this whenever there's been scenes with Frodo and Samwise, it's almost always been the viewer in the position of Samwise. He is our proxy. And when he is treated badly by Gollum and then by Frodo, you you react to it as if it's as if it's you being treated like that. And only here, right at the end, you have Frodo in the position the viewer in the position of Frodo and it is the first time that we see things through Frodo's eyes and see this sort of dream like I'm not quite sure I can believe what's going on mm. happening to him and I suppose that's where you 
So is that sort of the root of this this feeling of uncertainty of what now, right at the end? I mean, for me, the, the ending scene, the ending sort of narrative we've got, it ties way back to the very start of the first film and what people were after mm. and the driving force. And Frodo, Frodo wanted adventure. He wanted to go out and do something and see something. Sam didn't. Sam just wanted a quiet life in the Shire and he wanted Rosie. And so... I think it's interesting that the film and the book itself does play on the idea of, like, once you've got your dream, once you've had your adventure, and it's now a year and a bit of adventure, what next? What, how, do you, you know, there's a line in it, how do you tie together the threads of a life forgotten? Or left behind? And how do you, like, it, it, it's it's a strange thing. Now, I'm going I'm to get personal here, guys, I'm going to get personal and open up and be emotional. Oh, no. I know. Um... Some of you may know, and Sam's not know, that for a long time in my career, probably a good six, seven years, I travelled for work. Uh, I was away a lot. I was away over half the year for many years, travelling, making films on set. So I was in the Middle East, I was in Europe, I was in um, New Zealand for a little bit. And I, I, that line bizarrely really struck me, that idea of what you come back from doing these things and how do you rebuild a life? Now I'm lucky I've got my wife and I've got my daughter and I've got some really good old friends. Um, but I, I understand that feeling of kind of being a little bit adrift. Of like, I've done this thing, I've seen these places. And I've come back and the world's still here and it's still the same. And for Sam, that's brilliant. The fact that he can go through all of this and come home and the Shire is still the Shire... And it's still his home is exactly what he wants. But for Frodo, he's come back and it's just, it's the same. And whilst he has changed, and you know, it does show that he did this scar where he got stabbed on the top still hasn't healed. He's a changed man. He then can't live in a world that's the same. No, I think, think that, that, as you said, comes to what they want right at the beginning of this uh, of this story is that what Frodo wants is adventure and you can never if adventure is all you want you can never have enough mm. it's, I suppose it's, it's, that's it's sort of adrenaline junkie mountain climbing types, they always want to go and do something bigger, something better something more but for Sam, if he can come back to Peshire and everything's alright, then he's happy and fulfilled and that's the end of it, whereas Frodo can never achieve his dream, achieve his ends, because mm. he will always be wanting. Yeah, because what he wants isn't the Shire. He loves mm. the Shire, and it's his home, and it's good to be home. But what he wants is is somewhere else. Yeah, and I think that's to tie it back to the larger themes of the of the um, of the narrative is that the one thing he doesn't want is power. He's never seemed to sort power. And that's why he was able to defend and destroy the ring. Because what he wants isn't the power of the ring. He wants stories and adventures and go places. Mm. Uh, which is yeah. why he was able to uh, sort of uh, resist it. Yeah, although it does really... It d does definitely take its toll on them. Oh, oh yeah. Obviously, visually throughout the, 
very much so very much so and and you that they very much in this film it's the interesting parallels they draw between Gollum and Frodo and the feeling that without without Sam around that Gollum is where Frodo's heading and even with yeah. Sam around it's still touch and go but you have this kind of almost like this, like this character that is, it is this flash forward in, in, in Frodo's life in this the love of this ring um, and even to get to Mount Doom and he gets ready to cast it in there's a moment in which he says no, I'm, and it's mine, and and you know the, the, it, it was all almost lost there, shall we say? Something I saw very recently was a a transformation video of Andy Serkis becoming Caesar for the new Planet of the Apes film, and that sort of transformation from man with dots on his face to monkey is the sort of thing you have at the beginning of this with. Schmeagel becoming Gollum, mm. and you're right. That that's the thing that that Frodo is very close to becoming himself in the course of these films. And it, it is, you know, it, it's a very subtle thing. But the visual effects they did make uh, Tony Schmeagel's eyes bigger towards into this film because Gollum oh. Gollum has obviously these very exaggerated eyes. He's a very sort of unique. Um, look, one of which is these big eyes, and they did visually effectively kind of make his eyes get bigger and slowly bigger. It's very slow; you wouldn't like really pick up on it, but they are there, making his eyes a little bit bigger to kind of mirror his, sl- or even just highlight his slow transition towards that. I was thinking about the the way this was filmed, and you you talked about the sort of spectacular nature of the battle scenes. I do want to say that it it's not just. Um, so spectacular scenes of people sword fighting or elephants in battle or anything like that. It was also because I suppose you have if scenes like that in, say, the original Star Wars trilogy with the Atats, and it's mm. that sort of thing. But something that really stood out to me was the way that you the camera would be. It was like the camera was attached to a rock being flung. Yes. And there was something, I don't really know how to articulate, this is why I'm, I'm struggling for it, but there's something, that the camera from the perspective of a projectile involved in the battle. So you're not just witnessing people going toe-to-toe, you're not just witnessing the animals involved, you're actually, you actually become this missile involved in the battle. I think, yes, I think that this comes down to what I tend to call filmic language. Um, and as an audience, we are we're trained to expect certain sorts of shots. So we're used to the wide shot, the mid shot, the close up, the dolly shot, you know, the camera moves in a kind of thing. And you, into that, you've added things like the, um, the um, steady cam shot. You know, cars, you know, camera rigs, but there, there are certain shots we expect in certain ways. And in the back of your mind, subconsciously, you, you understand a little bit how films are made, camera person, and so you understand that these things happen. And you've got now things like drone shots coming in, helicopter shots, but there's always this understanding of that there's a physical thing, a camera. And I know that you're talking about this shot when when they they, they chuck masonry out of Ministerio into the bad guys, and you, you follow this this thing down into the um into the swirling mass of orcs but that isn't a shot that you see anywhere else that kind of camera movement even in visual effects shots tends to be 
you don't get that kind of movement because you can't you, you, there's no way physically to get that kind of movement and for me it, uh, I thought it was an amazing shot it was a really interesting shot but you do feel the shot now this reminds me of when we, when we talked about uh, Star Wars the um, Force Awakens I really like that one apart from the very last shot in which you have this swirling helicopter shot round Ray and Luke on this island yeah. and you feel the camera and that was done badly. I think that, that you feel the camera there, whereas this felt immersive and unique. And Peter Jackson's done this throughout with cameras going down holes into um, uh, when they were doing the mining and that kind of thing. Yes. And yeah. a, a lot of this comes from, I think, his early days in the schlock horror kind of moving. And there's a, there's a shot I remember from this when they are going past the City of the Dead um, to climb up these steps. And we look up at these gargoyles that are guarding the gate. And the camera comes in on a Dutch angle. Basically, means just tilt it to the side. And it comes in this kind of... It, it's that kind of horror move of like of unease and weirdness. It kind of comes in turns looking up at this um, mm. gargoyle. And it, it's all designed to give you that feeling of unease. And I think that a lot has been said about Peter Jackson's kind of the sumptuous world he creates and the visual effects. But I think he, he does know how to move a camera very well. And even in the case of this shot, talking about the motion shot, he knows how to create a camera. And he knows how yeah. to, using visual effects, create this shot which can't be done. And, and, and that's done very well. And you notice that's the movement of the camera, the actual presence of the camera in the film. And that scene with... Um, Denethor running off the pyre burning and running outside and that burning figure dropping from a height and it's one of the brilliant things about him that about Peace Jackson, the way he directs that you have already moved away from Denethor's story, it's mm. not like you, you necessarily have to watch that happening, you've already moved on to a wider shot of the outside of Minister Ed and the battle that's going on outside but there's something very clever that you don't i suppose that that movement that moving on in the narrative can kind of mean that the the movement of the camera gets i don't know there's something very clever about the way that the camera follows that burning figure out of the inside of the castle and then jumping off the ledge on the outside and there's so, I mean, I, I, I'm not entirely sure the director would or the DP would get credit for that as mm. much as he really should. There's something really innovative about the way that he uses the camera thing. I think it's and we, to reference a very bad film that does a similar sort of thing uh, in a bad way. The Transformers films. I haven't seen a lot of them. I must say, I haven't seen the last couple, but the early ones. One big problem was he had no sense of space, no sense of location, no sense of of where the items you really care about are in relation to each other. They're just a, a swirling mass of camera and robots and CGI. Whereas here, the shot you're talking about where you pull back from Denethor to the sort of the battle of the army, it places all of this in the same location. You understand exactly. where all the little pieces that are moving are in relation to each other. So, Rob, do you have any recommendations for us to round out this franchise? I do, I do. And I must say, at, at this point, I've just kind of... I'm just going with actors I like and movies I like um, and mm. films that, that should be watched. The first one is Sean Asson. I think that Samwise Ganji is the sort of, not the unsung, because people appreciate this, but he's very much the hero of this story. He's the one who carries Frodo when he can't go anything. And the fact that it shows the last shot of the film, the last scene of the film, 
is him and his family and Rosie. Like he, he is he's the beating heart of this story. And he, Sean Astin, obviously made famous for the Goonies prior to this. But in that same era, back in 1991, he made a film called Toy Soldiers. It's basically about a terrorist group seizing control of a school and the kids fighting back in many ways. It stars Will Wheaton alongside Sean Astin. It is very good and it isn't given kind of the credit it's deserved in terms of his his filmography obviously say goonies get a lots of work will week is more well known things like stand by me and star wars but if you haven't seen toy soldiers um it's well worth seeing it's kind of dark um and and a bit interesting in many ways secondly i've taken the actor who played um what's his name faramir I'm just literally looking for his name right now because I can't remember what I had. Uh, David Wenham. Uh, I really enjoy the cat Faramir. I think he's he's kind of in the shadow of Boromir and other men in the in the film, but I think he's an interesting character. But he also was a large character in a film that I love and I don't think gets enough love, and people really seem to hate on it. But I really enjoyed it, and that is the 2008 film Australia from Baz Luhrmann. This film has that same kind of a sumptuous epic. It's as close to the modern film gets to things like Gone with the Wind and that kind of movie. It's got Hugh Jackman in it. It's got Nicole Kidman in it um, as the two main guys and their sort of adventures in rural Australia, interacting with the British war machine, interacting with Aboriginal tribes and that kind of thing. But more than anything else, it is one of the most beautiful films I've seen in many years. So those are my two. Uh, Australia and Twitters. Recommendations. Um, I, like you, have sort of run out of thematic connections and I'm just going for actors at this point and films that I like. Um, and one of them is Irma, who's Theoden's nephew, played by Carl Urban, who is Bones in the Star Trek reboot. Mm-hmm. And... I really enjoyed the first film in that. I thought that was... I mean, we've seen quite a few reboots over the past five years or so, and this was the first in a spate of these, I suppose. It's a bit longer than five years now, 2009. But I really did enjoy that film. My second actor connection is... Um, Elrond, played by Hugo Weaving, and I suppose I could have mentioned any number of films that Hugo Weaving's been in, and I've gone for Captain America, the first Avenger, which I, I mean, apart from the fact it's, it is a bit long, I really do enjoy that film, um, particularly, and one of the, the really good things I think about that film is the fact that the spoiler alert, is no happy ending. And there's something that I, I really enjoyed about this particular film and some of the films that Marvel have done, that they haven't taken the easy route out. And they, mm-hmm. they have made Captain America's story tie in with the comics and there being a sense of irresolution that is not always present in films nowadays. Fair enough, fair enough. So guys, that kind of concludes the season. We've got, I say, a sort of a mini episode coming up on Patreon for us talking about the whole season and what we've learned from the movies we loved. But next week is, well, next week, two weeks' time, is going to be a, a unusual and special episode for us, isn't it, Sam? It is, yes. 
Um, it is to mark our hundredth uh, episode on the podcast. Mm-hmm. We're going to be looking at the film that sort of directly or indirectly gave the podcast its name, um, and it's one of I I think the few Christopher Nolan films that Rob genuinely enjoys. Or certainly enjoys more than other Christopher Nolan films. We'll see in a week's time. <laughs> uh, it is the the prestige itself. Yes. So we will be back in 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 two weeks with the prestige about the prestige. There's something quite pleasing about that. Just say that over and over again. Uh, damn mad. All right, guys. We shall see you hopefully over on Patreon. If not, we'll see you in two weeks' time. Remember, if you want to get in contact, you can do so with either of us at Prestige Podcast on Twitter. Or you can get to just me at Rob Kaiju. Or just me at Life underscore Academic. And we'll see you again. We really are gone now. Bye. Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr. Arg.